Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. The Lord had led me to focus on one particular verse, and that's John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. And I didn't know until the day before we got there, the day that we actually came to the airport, and Joni handed me this shirt, which I guess was the uh, sort had the theme for the trip. And guess which verse it was? More God, less of me, John 3.30. Uh, I guess the Holy Spirit was working. Yes. It's always a beautiful thing. Sometimes our lack of planning allows the Holy Spirit to do the planning. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. Well, anyway... I want to make a few comments on this passage uh, that was just read by Kevin, uh, just to sort of set the stage for this incredible statement in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. So if you're not already opened up to John chapter 3, verse 22, go ahead and do that. And as you're getting it on your phone or on your tablet or you're opening your Bible, let me just pray for us this morning that God would speak to us from his word. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. You need to speak to us through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, Lord, that we might hear you clearly speak to each one of us. Show us, Father, well, first of all, give us the desire to want to be more like your son, Jesus. And then show us the step that we might be ready to take in order for that to happen in our life. And Lord, thank you that you're the one that's doing the work in us. You allow us to partner with you, but you are the one that provides the power, the change, and the transformation because of your amazing grace. And for that, we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, John chapter 3, a lot of good stuff, but again, I'm just going to focus on that one verse. So in this chapter, uh, it says that Jesus was baptizing. If you go down to chapter 4, verse 2, it says Jesus himself actually wasn't the one baptizing. He was just overseeing his disciples who were baptizing. But at this particular point in time, John the Baptist was also still baptizing. You see, God sent John the Baptist as that forerunner, the one who was going to prepare the way for the Lord. So John's ministry began earlier. Jesus' ministry then began a little bit later. But you have this period of time where their two ministries overlap just a little bit. And so both them and their disciples are baptizing in in sort of the same area. So you come to verse 25, um, and it says that there was a discussion. Now, I don't know exactly the definition or the difference between a discussion and an argument. Maybe an argument is sort of a heated discussion, but I remember as the kids were growing up, sometimes Sharon and I were having discussions and they would say, why are you arguing? Arguing? We'd say, we're not arguing, we're just having a discussion. (laughs) In their mind, it's kind of like, well, it looks a little bit more like a typical discussion. So we don't know exactly what discussion means here, but I would just suspect that there were some differences of opinions going on because they were talking about purification, types of washings or cleansings. And some of those come from the Old Testament, washings and cleansings. Perhaps the Pharisees had added on some ceremonial types of washings or cleansing for people 
another sect of the Jews, the Essenes probably had some as well, but whatever was going on, it may have even been a comparison between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. They may have been talking about that, which got John's disciples a little bit worked up and quite frankly, probably a little bit defensive. And so that's why they come to John and they say here in uh, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, if you turn over to chapter one of John, go ahead and flip over if you got your Bible there, and look at verse 29. This is what he's referring to uh, in terms of bearing witness. Uh, verse 29 says, chapter one, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist had prepared his disciples for the coming of Christ. He made it pretty clear that he was a messenger. He was that, that one crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. God had sent him ahead of, ahead of Jesus to just prepare the way. He was sort of like a forerunner, an, an assistant, someone that would, would come in and proclaim the kingdom of God is coming. The king is going to be at, at hand. John's disciples should have known that at some point his ministry was going to fade and the ministry of Jesus was gonna take over at that point. But you know how it is when you're zealous about a certain teacher or a pastor or your father or a mentor, you get kind of worked up and we begin, when things begin to change or you begin to get that, that there's more of an influence from another person, sometimes you can get a little bit defensive and I think that's probably what happened with John's disciples. But look at John's reaction. Look at John the Baptist. He's had this wonderful ministry. People have come out from the villages to hear him in the wilderness. He's had huge crowds to proclaim the kingdom of God calling them to repent and to be baptized and to be prepared for the king. And look how he responds. Verse uh, 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. There's a lot more there than what we can imagine. Everything you have in your life, life itself, abilities, gifts, ministries, jobs, careers, relationships, finances. Everything you have is a gift from God, everything. We tend in our flesh to think, well, no, I worked for that. Well, who gave you health? Who gave you ability? Who gave you eyes to see, hands to move? They're all from God, it's all a gift from him. And he recognizes the ministry he had was from God the Father. And the ministry that God the Son now has is from the Father as well. Don't you, aren't you tempted sometimes to look at other people and think, oh, I wish I could do this like that person or I had those mechanical abilities or whatever it is you don't, well, God has not equipped you that way. You always, we always look and think, I wish I were somebody else or could have those gifts. But yet we need to be content. 
They don't have those gifts, gifts as a result of themselves. God gave it to them. And the, and the gifts you have, the ministries you have, the opportunities that you have, God gave you those opportunities. They're right from his heart. John knew that. And then he goes in verse 28, he says, you yourselves bear me witness. Didn't I already tell you? I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So he begins to give this comparison of, of a Near Eastern wedding where you've got the bride and the bridegroom. You know, that's the focus of the attention. But then there's the bridegroom's assistant, the best man. It's not the best man's day. No, it's his job to make sure that the focus is on the bride and the bridegroom. It's their day. And that's what John is comparing himself to. He says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears the bridegroom's voice rejoices greatly at his voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I've done my job. I've prepared the way. I hear the voice of the bridegroom. I'm completely filled with joy, fulfillment, and contentment. Praise God. And then he says this statement, which specifically applied to Jesus and to himself in terms of how the ministry was going to continue, but I think we can apply it to ourselves as well. He must increase. Jesus must increase. And we must decrease. We have to step out of the way and not make it about us. You see, Jesus is the hero of the story. We're simply there to proclaim that, to celebrate that, to rejoice in that. Jesus is the hero of the story. So how does this passage apply to us today? How do we increase in Christ and how do we decrease in ourselves? I wanna give you seven steps today. And uh, you're not gonna be at all of those steps. Some of you may be at step one. Some of you maybe have accomplished step one and two, but you're beginning to understand what it means to go to step three and four and so on. So as I present these steps, think about maybe where you're at and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you today. And I'm just gonna kind of rattle through these a little more quickly. We'll eventually be in Luke 19 if you wanna open to there, but just hear me out on these seven steps and, and think about your own life. First of all, the first step to allowing Jesus to increase in your life is by recognizing that we are spiritually dead without Christ. In other words, how can we increase or become more like Christ if Christ isn't even a part of our life and we're spiritually dead? Uh, hear what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." The first thing about a relationship with Christ and growing in that relationship and increasing in him is that we all have to come to that point where we realize that no matter how much good we've done, no matter how many times we've attended church, no matter how much we've given to this or to that, that unless Christ is a part of your life, you're spiritually dead. You're a corpse, a spiritual corpse, and you can't do anything. which leads to point number two, or step two. 
to allow Jesus to increase after you recognize you're spiritually dead, then you have to receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to recognize that God is providing a way for you to have life. And it's by his grace, and grace just means God's riches at Christ's expense, or it's just the unmerited, undeserved favor and love of God, just because he wants to. Nothing that you've done to earn it. That's what grace is all about. So it's through God's unmerited love and your faith in his provision of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, that you have life. Now I'm just gonna continue to read Ephesians chapter two, verses four to nine. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. Forgiveness is the grace of God. Eternal life is the grace of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Many of you have done that at some point in the past, but perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, well, I thought Christianity was just about doing certain things and not doing certain things, or I, I thought if I just knew about Jesus in my head, that was good enough. No. Jesus has to move from your head to your heart and you have to receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You have to invite Christ in. God has to choose you, call you, you recognize that call, and, by, and you receive God's grace by faith in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Have you done that? Have you received the grace of God? Have you received Christ? If you haven't, then you're at that step. Today could be the day of salvation in your life. Step three, if you want Christ to increase in your life and you want to decrease, you have to remember that we have been crucified with Christ and he lives in us. When you receive Christ as your savior, that old man, that, that person that was under the wrath of God, unsaved person, still separated from God, all right, that that old man has been crucified. When Christ was crucified and when you put your faith in him, then you were crucified. The old man was put to death. Is it completely gone? No. But it's, he's been rendered powerless. You have to give that old man permission to continue to sin and to, and to live in a way that doesn't reflect Christ's desire for us. But you have power in Christ now. You can say no. That old man's been crucified. And here's the key. Jesus doesn't just tell you what to do and what not to do. He comes and lives inside of you to empower you to live the life of Christ. So who is it actually living the life of Christ? Well, listen to Galatians 2.20. Says, Paul says to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. My old man, nope, he's not, he's, he's not living anymore. He's been crucified but it's Christ who lives in me. That's who really lives in a believer's life. It's Christ who's living. Your old man's dead. It's Christ in you living his life through you. And the life you now live in the flesh, 
You live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Other religions of the world are gonna give you good moral principles to live by, things to do and things not to do. But Christianity is the only faith where God the Son comes down, dies a death, ascends to heaven, and then sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come and live inside of you to empower you and to give you the strength and power that you need to recognize you're different. You're changed. And it may come slow, it may be a slow, gradual understanding that your life has changed, but, but you are eerie, no, what's the word I'm thinking of? You can't go back. You are a new person now, all right? Irrevocable. I like that. Thank you. You are now the temple of God. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. Why should you glorify God in your body? You're the temple now. Your body is the temple of God. Christ resides in you. See, if I have somebody telling me, go and do this and do this and do that, and, and, and I know my old man is still battling and fighting to gain back the control that he lost, but essentially in Christ he's dead and the power of God resides in me to, to not only be this new person, but to let this new person be lived out through my thoughts, my words, and my actions. All right, point four. After you've gotten to that point then, to allow Christ to increase you have to acknowledge that Christ died for us in order that we might live for him. In other words, here's the proper response to what Jesus has done, all right? Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Everybody in Christ, all of us have died. And he died for all, why? that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died for you that you might live for him. You see the response? Jesus did such an incredible thing for you, and now he says, do this for me. And I'll live inside of you, empower you, give you the word of God to guide you and the body of Christ to encourage you and exhort you and to stir you up to all these good deeds. I'll give you all those things. Do it out of response of love for me. You see, the Christian life, living for Christ, is not out of a sense of duty. I've already been saved through my faith in Christ. I don't have to earn God's favor anymore. I don't have to do this to make sure I'm guaranteed of heaven. In Christ, I've already been guaranteed heaven, forgiveness, eternal life. They're all mine in him because where he is, that's where I'm at. As he is, so am I. I'm connected to Christ. I've been immersed in Christ. I'm part of Christ and I'm part of the body of Christ. And that is irrevocable. You cannot separate that. It can't be, you can't be torn away from all of those things. So the reason you serve, the reason you love, the reason you live for Christ is not to gain favor or advantage. You already have all of that in Jesus. It's simply to express your love for the Savior and what he's already done for you. It's not out of duty. It's not out of fear. It's not out of trying to gain something that you don't have. You already have it all. 
just recognize you've been blessed and let that grace be the driving force and the motivation through the Holy Spirit to live for him. Let the, let the life of Christ live through you. You don't even have to live your life anymore. You're dead. Put it aside. It was worthless. But now you have Jesus to live, live through you and, and for you to live for him. So step five. Here's a tough one. Once you get to this point where you've come to Christ, you recognize he lives in you for the purpose of living his life through you. Then he says, I not only want to be your savior, I want to be your Lord. I want to be your master. That's called discipleship, following Jesus as Lord. And so you have to count the cost of discipleship. And you have to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ and be willing to pay that cost. And here's why you're smart in doing that, all right? Some of you are probably savvy investors. If I invest this, then I'll profit this. Well, when you live a life for Christ, when you count the cost of discipleship and you're willing to pay that cost, yeah, there's some pain. But it's just like anything, there's no gain unless there's some pain. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a cost in following Christ, but the gain is so much more. Uh, I love the quote from Jim Elliott, uh, think, talking about missions trips and missions Jim Elliott was one of uh, five men and families that went down to Ecuador in the 1950s. And basically, uh, the five men lost their lives trying to reach a tribal group that had, didn't have the gospel. But one of Jim Elliott's quotes, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You think about that. It's not foolish to give up what you can't keep this body, this life here on earth, it's, 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 it, you're gonna die. You can't keep it. But if you give up your life here, in other words, your agenda, your plan, your desires, then on the other end, you're gonna gain something you can't lose. Smart investment, don't you think? I think so. I'm not a smart man, but that seems to make sense to me. So listen to uh, a few verses on discipleship. Luke 9, 23 and 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it forever. And then Luke 14, 26 and 27. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, if you don't love me so much more than all of your closest relatives and even your own life, you really cannot follow me. See, Jesus doesn't leave us room to move. He says, if you're really gonna follow me and be a disciple of mine, if you're gonna really claim that I'm Lord of your life, it doesn't mean that you actually hate your father. It just means in comparison's sake, you're gonna love me so much more. You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna focus on me and not on those other relationships or even your own life. And you, know, you don't have to worry about things because, I mean, Jesus calls us as disciples to love one another. 
So it doesn't mean that you don't love your family and your friends and church folk, you do. But compared to loving him, it should seem as if we're almost hating other people. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't allow you to kind of put a foot in the Jesus camp and a foot in the world or a foot in your own life and what you want and a foot in what he wants. He says you're either in or you're out. Remember that conversation about sort of a, a narrow gate and a narrow path? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is pretty narrow in his thinking. And the people in the world think, well, you're being intolerant. No, we're just preaching truth. God has a way. Jesus has a way. He's not calling you just to come here on Sunday morning and say, yeah, I, I, Jesus is my Savior. He wants you on a daily basis, all week long, every moment long. He wants to be your Lord. There's a cost. But the cost never outweighs the gain. That's the thing. He always gives back more. You cannot outgive God. When you give your life to him and follow him and, and you put him above everything else in your life, when you cling to Jesus, don't worry. It's just like he says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things that you need will be handed to you. They'll be given to you. You don't have to worry about it. And then he goes on to say in verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who, do, who does not renounce, in other words, gives up all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Remember the, the story of the rich young ruler that comes up and says, you know, Lord, what can, I, what, what can I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, I've done those things and more. But then Jesus says, well, one thing you lack Go and give away all that you have and come follow me. See, Jesus knew what the idol of his heart was. It was money. It was his possessions. It was all that he had. He held it like this instead of like this. It's okay to have money. It's okay to have possessions. But if you hold it like this, how can you cling to Jesus when you're clinging to something else? You can't. You have to make a decision. That's counting the cost of discipleship and realizing that being willing to give, the, give it is, is gonna, you're gonna gain so much more. Jesus wants you to be fed. He wants you to have drink. He wants you to have clothing. He wants you to have a roof over your head. He's gonna provide those things for you. But you have to be willing to hold things loosely to be his disciple. Remember, it's not about you. Who's the hero of the story? <laughs> it's not us. We're servants, we're stewards. He gives us things and then we hold it like this and then he says, well, give some here and help that person and support this cause. When we're willing to do that, he just keeps supplying. When you're a steward he can trust, he'll just keep giving it to you. When he can't trust you with a little, he's not gonna trust you with a lot. But when he can trust you with a little, then he'll give a lot because you're gonna still practice those same principles, all right? Just a couple more in this area of counting the cost. Uh, John 8, 31, 32, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you 
free. If you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to allow Jesus to increase in your life, you have to be reading and studying, meditating upon, sharing the word of God. Some of you I've taught my hand illustration to, to to really get a grasp on the Bible. All right, to get a good grasp, a grasp on the Bible, just think, I'm using my hand to grasp it. All right, you have to hear it, you have to read it, study it, memorize, meditate it, apply it, and then you have to share it. When you do those things, then you'll have a grasp on the Bible. And when you have a grasp on the Bible, that proves that you're a disciple. It proves you don't want to just hear the thoughts of the world. You want to hear the thoughts of Jesus. You want to know what he thinks. You want to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you through the all-powerful Word of God. And then lastly, when you've done all of those things, John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. When you do all of those things, then your life will start bearing fruit. You'll see people want to get in spiritual conversations with you, or you might have an opportunity to help a person take a, a, a step closer to Jesus. You'll just begin to see that God blesses you in such a way that the overflow of the life of Christ in you spills over into other people that are around you. Some of it's intentional. Other times, it just flows. It's just like you can't stop the gospel. You can't stop the Holy Spirit. and You can't stop the love of God from flowing through you and touching other people. Because it's not you. You're just, a, you're just a tube that's emptied itself so that the love of God can come through that and reach somebody else. You're just a conduit. But God, it's just like a parent allowing a, a small child to help in a task. The parent could probably do it better himself, but because he loves the child and wants that child to be a part of it and to grow in those areas, they allow that child to come along and they do it together. And that's the way God is with us. He loves us so much, he wants us to have the joy of being involved in the process of growing ourselves and helping other people to grow as well. So, two last points here. First, uh, number six, Christ can increase in us and we can decrease when we put off the old self and put on the new self. And basically, Ephesians 4, that passage just says to do those things. And here's the key to it. You have to renew your mind in the, in the spirit of truth, all right? To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How do you do that? Again, by the word of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, as a man thinks, so is he. Your thinking will drive your emotions, and your thinking and emotions will drive your words and your actions. If you know correct doctrine, if you know truth, if you know theology, if you know it, what it means to have a relationship with God, and, and you know your, the, more, the better you know your Bible, the more you're going to be able to have your mind renewed, and that will cause you to want to put off the things of the old man, the things that are weighing you down. They're encumbrances. Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about the, the, the sins that hang on to us. We have to shed those things so that we can run the race with endurance. And so the more your mind is being renewed, the easier it is to put off those things and to put on Christ, to put him on, to put his character traits, to, to, put, to surrender our lives each day, to get on our knees as we get out of bed and just say, Lord, I'm yours. Help me to live this day for you. Now, some of you 
along with myself right now, can think of things that we need to put off. Things that you battle and perhaps have battled for years. Thoughts or certain attitudes or actions or habits or things. We all have them. Nobody's arrived yet unless you're dead and Christ has already taken you, but it looks like most of you are still here uh, this morning. A couple people sleeping, but that's okay. You know, it's not bad. So, since God hasn't completed his work in us quite yet, there's still gonna be a battle going on. The flesh and the spirit, but the more you feed the spirit, the more you allow the spirit of your mind to be renewed, the more you beat down the flesh and the more the spirit wins and God gains control of your life. And here's an encouraging last point, point number seven. For Christ to increase and us to decrease, you have to have faith that God will complete his life-changing work in us. Now here's why that's so encouraging. Here's why this should bring joyful confidence to us. It's not dependent upon us to finally get there. Our job is to engage in the battle, to put on the armor of God, to renew our minds, to put off and to put on, to keep counting the cost of discipleship, to recognize it's not me, it's Christ in me and through me that changes me and influences people, and to recognize that no matter how hard I try, I'm never gonna get there, but Christ will get me there. He promised. And so Paul said, I'm, com- I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Someday, you'll be that purified, blameless, perfect bride in white linen, and you'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the bridegroom will be before us. God will accomplish the work. But I think we need to be uh, cooperative participants in the meantime. In other words, if you want to experience some of that joy now, then put yourself in the Lord's hands and let him be Lord of your life. Now, if you turn, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to Luke chapter 19, I just want to show you a great example of, of this whole thing. This is a story of Zacchaeus, and for sake of time, I'm not going to start with verse 1, but uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He lived in Jericho. He knew Jesus was coming through. He couldn't see him. He was small in stature, so he climbed up in a sycamore tree. And we pick it up there in verse uh, five. Jesus came to the place, and he looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. In other words, Zacchaeus, I wanna know you. I wanna have a relationship with you. I want us to, to sup together and to fellowship. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He received Jesus. And when they they saw it, in other words, the crowd in general, especially the religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I think I see transformation happening in this man pretty quickly. I think I see him being willing to give up his old life for the sake of this new life with Jesus. To count the cost and to hold things loosely and be able to give them away. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
What a wonderful example of allowing Christ to increase and for Zacchaeus then to decrease. All right? Now, question. Why should we do this? Why should we want Christ to increase and ourselves to decrease? Simple answer. It's the will of God. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, in other words, those that God chose to save, says that he also predestined or predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, if Christ is your savior, or if one day you turn and receive Christ as your savior, then God's plan for you from that point on is to conform you or to make you like Christ. He wants to make you like his son, to model your life after him. But remember, it's not your efforts that are gonna get you there. It's God, the Holy Spirit, working in you and through you that's gonna get you there. You just have to keep the heart open and allow the Holy Spirit to keep speaking and to stay in God's word and to be obedient, even in the small things. And as you are, you'll look in the mirror, sort of the spiritual mirror at some point, and say, you know what? I am not at all like I was two years ago. And you might also say, praise God, Two years later, hopefully I won't be where I am right now. I will have grown. And that's the whole point, is maturity. God wants to grow us up to be like Jesus. So what step do you need to take this morning? You need to come to Christ, receive him. You need to recognize he lives in you and can empower you then to not try to live your old life, but allow his life to be lived in and through you. Or maybe you just need to count the cost of discipleship and think, okay, Jim Elliott gave his life for Christ, but he says he wasn't a fool because he only gave up what he couldn't keep in order to gain what he couldn't lose. I want to be that kind of a man or a woman. Maybe there's things to put off or put on in your life. Maybe you're just at the point where you just need to rejoice and to recognize God's going to complete it someday. He's going to finish the work. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that your word is so clear in terms of how we come into a relationship with you through your son. And it's not by our works or our effort or doing good. It's simply by putting our faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross. Celebrating his resurrection and recognizing that as he rose from the dead, that when we are in him, that we have risen from the dead as well and that we've been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places and that from this point on, he can live in us and through us as we shed off the old and put on the new. May you be glorified in each person's life here this morning, Lord, and may, may your message and your truth not stop here, but may it walk out the door into the streets, into the marketplace, into the workplaces, into the neighborhoods, and may you be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.